medicines basically go zoop, hit these receptors in your brain and you go, you know what? Not only did I eat a, a smaller portion that I usually do, I could take it or leave that dessert. And it's what the patients describe. They all say the same thing. We've had, I've had thousands of, of patients. We have tens of thousands of patients and they all say the same thing. Like they still like it. They can eat it if they want to, but they can take it or leave it. They just don't want it anymore. They don't have the strong desire, that strong itch that they have to scratch. They don't have it anymore. They can just take it or leave it. And what they say is that, is this what it finally feels like to feel normal? What it feels like to be someone who lives in a smaller body, a, a body that doesn't have to fight tooth and nail, white knuckle it every single day to, to not eat those types of foods. It's, it's remarkable. GLP-1 agonist medications have been a popular topic of discussion recently. While this class of drugs has been prescribed for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, it has recently been approved for the treatment of obesity. GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic have made their way into Hollywood and quickly became popular among the stars, which led a lot of people to question their safety as well as their long-term use. Are GLP-1 agonists a quick fix for weight loss or a lifetime prescription? What happens to a person's weight after they come off this medication? Who should be prescribed this medicine? And what are the possible side effects? Hi, I'm Ashley Reaver, and in this episode of Longevity by Design, Dr. Blander and I sit down with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, an obesity and lipid specialist physician. We have a fascinating conversation about GLP-1 agonists. He explains how the medications cause weight loss, how they interact with brain chemistry, and answers questions about their safety. Dr. Nadolsky also discusses who should take this medicine, how different individuals require different treatment protocols, as well as their long-term implications. Spencer has many patients who have successfully used GLP-1 agonist drugs, and he is very knowledgeable about their current use as well as their future potential. In addition to our conversation about GLP-1 agonists, this episode talks about various aspects of metabolism. Spencer gives his opinion on the question, is obesity a choice? Describes how our environment impacts our food choices. Additionally, we talk about ApoB, insulin resistance, and much more. We also cover the importance of weightlifting and why he prescribes this to his patients. Lastly, he is a great follow on Instagram. This episode was packed, and I hope that you enjoy it. To support Longevity by Design, please rate and review the podcast. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel in each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light, and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. Dr. Nadolsky is an obesity and lipid specialist physician with a passion for improving patient outcomes through innovative solutions. As the medical director for Sequence, an online comprehensive obesity management program owned by Weight Watchers, he is committed to developing cutting edge programs that transform the way healthcare is delivered. With a background in telemedicine and fitness coaching, Spencer brings a unique perspective to the digital healthcare space. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, welcome, uh, Spencer. We are very excited to host uh, 
a physician that uh, deal uh, with obesity and other uh, weight related issues, which, which are a big issue in uh, America. And we always uh, like to start by asking our guests question about what made them decided to become a scientist or in your uh, example, to be, become a, a physician. Yeah. So I was always into sports. I grew up in an academically and athletically minded family. Dad was a biology teacher and wrestling coach. My mom was an elementary school teacher, older brother, smart guy. He's an endocrinologist, actually very good athletics as well. But I was his younger brother and we, I just growing up, I was like, you know what? I really want to be good at sports. I can't rely on my genetics. You got to actually work hard. But I also wanted to use science to get better using nutrition and exercise science. So I actually did really well, not at first, but throughout high school, got really good at wrestling and football and uh, wrestling at UNC Chapel Hill as their heavyweight, did pretty well there and went to medical school and everybody thought you should be an orthopedic doctor. You're the big, strong guy, kind of like a stereotypical thing. And I was like, no, 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 that doesn't really get me going. I, I, I thought, you know. If I could just take a fraction of my passion for getting better uh, performance and helping people use that fraction just to prevent or even put into remission their type 2 diabetes, get out of pain, uh, that would be fulfilling to me. So instead of getting people going from like a 300-pound bench press to a 400-pound bench press or going from a six-minute mile to under a five-minute mile, it was like, how about we get people to just walk for 10 minutes in the first place after being sedentary? How about we get people to do their first push-up type of thing? And, and that really was fulfilling. So you go throughout medical school and then you, you got to pick your specialty after that and go to residency. And ultimately that it, it, it proved to be what I, I really like to do. I, I, I didn't care about helping people that were in my same shoes. I liked helping people that were just going to go from nothing to just something and really improve their life by a lot as opposed to incremental improvements in performance. So that's really what got me into that. And then the, the telemedicine thing was a whole nother story, but basically understanding that our current uh, healthcare system is a bit archaic in the way that we treated people. Um, and I can go into that if you want, but that's kind of that tech later in my life tech stuff. And how about as a lipid specialist, was that something that you were interested in before or something that also came later? Yeah. Yeah. It fits into the whole cardiometabolic picture. Um, there's no cardiometabolic medicine, especially right now they're talking about it, but imagine, uh, there's lifestyle at a, at a base and then you have like obesity medicine and, and lipidology. You can go into cardiology, but cardiologists learn pretty much like lipids. And, uh, they also have something called electrophysiology, like you know, the, the electricity through the heart and how the heart beats. I'm not interested in that stuff. I'm more interested in the atherosclerosis and preventing that and treating that. Whereas I also like endocrinology, but they also go into things beyond, uh, let's say, uh, metabolic syndrome. They go into thyroid cancers and pituitary disorders that like, yeah, hey, they're kind of interesting, but I, I don't like that. So cardiometabolic medicine combines like lifestyle, obesity medicine, lipids, and the, the, the stuff of endocrine that I really like and the stuff of cardiology I really like. So I had to kind of niche out my own specialty. I think, it, and I think in the future, there'll be its own specialty. They're talking about it. So the lipids fit in there. Excellent. And uh, we, we would like to um, maybe switch gear and talk about uh, metabolic and what is metabolism and all of that. So maybe we can start by you explaining what, what, what is the meaning of the word metabolism 
uh, yeah. and describe uh, uh, what does it mean to be in a good metabolic state. Yeah. Well, when you think about like metabolism, it just colloquially, like if you ask a patient, like, what do you know about metabolism? They'll, they'll talk about how many calories they burn, but like, it really comes down to the, the, the little chemical processes, all the little processes that are going on in our body, whether it's like our osteoblasts making bones or our little enzymes breaking down lipoproteins, all these different little things in our body that are going on, our, our muscles working, our our organs doing their jobs. So all those little metabolic processes make up our metabolism. And there's different components of our, our metabolism. If you're thinking about how many calories we, we burn, there's your basal metabolic rate, how, how much you would burn just being alive. And then there's like thermic effect of food, like how much how many calories you burn while digesting and those types of components and exercise and all this stuff. But like metabolism itself is just like, the processes in our in our body so when you think about like what is metabolic health like what does that mean well it would mean that i don't know if you want to say optimal but like there's certain parts of our metabolism that are uh, would be considered normal or if you are things are going wrong could be pathological so like for instance poor metabolic health is somebody with type 2 diabetes they're insulin resistant they're the, the components related to their insulin of their metabolism aren't working as, as they should. So somebody with good metabolic health, all the processes are working as uh, it was intended to. That's kind of the gist. Yeah. And uh, by the way, we like the word uh, optimal. So uh, please continue. Yeah. We strongly yeah. believe that uh, there is a normal, but there is optimal and uh, nobody, uh, no one is boring. So everyone should be in the optimal state. So uh, yeah, ideally. Well, 100% agree with you about that. Uh, and uh, uh, we would like, uh, if we are uh, uh, zooming in into metabolism, we would like to discuss how diet impacts uh, glucose uh, regulation, which is uh, a very important part of uh, uh, metabolism. Uh, and uh, why a, a proper uh, metabolic uh, function is critical for a uh, health span. Um, so I, I would like uh, uh, to start by uh, maybe if you can uh, uh, shed the light on the key mechanism uh, by uh, which uh, uh, food intake influences the regulation of uh, glucose uh, in the body. Yeah. So, you know, you learn in medical school how, like, you eat something, some sort of food containing carbohydrate. Uh, it gets broken down into glucose for the most part. Glucose, there's sugars, but turns into glucose, gets into your bloodstream, and the, the glucose can't automatically get into your cells, whether it's your fat or your muscle. It can a little bit. Uh, it needs this, what I call like a key, and that would be insulin. So your pancreas uh, senses the glucose in your blood and sends out this key. And the keys go to, you know, they're, they're glucose, uh, glucose transporters, but like we always talk about, my brother and I kind of came up with this analogy where the key of insulin goes and turns on these little sugar trucks in your cells. The sugar trucks come out, grab the glucose, and bring them back into the cell. So that's, that's generally how it works when you eat some sort of food. Now, the thing is, though, the issue becomes when those sugar trucks don't work as well. The key's not working as well. The, maybe there's something jammed in the ignition. Maybe the battery of the sugar trucks aren't working quite as well. Something's going on to where the, that key of insulin isn't getting those sugar trucks out there. That's where you start seeing the rise in your blood sugar start going up and up and up. And I know we're going to talk about in, uh, in measuring insulin, but like 
you know, so your pancreas, if, if your blood sugar is still going up and up and up, your pancreas may go, Hey, we need to send more keys. Why is, why is the blood sugar going up? And still sometimes that doesn't work because there's something in the ignition or the batteries are dead or that type of thing. So that's the gist of a food and insulin and, and glucose uh, metabolism. Um, we can go into a little bit more of why that happens and why I'm into obesity and lipids. You know, there's, there's some really cool researchers out there. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a bench researcher. I'm just really into this from a, like a, like a clinically translational research standpoint where it's like, you know, some of these mouse studies and all these things are cool. I like to take that and put it into practical uh, translation terms with my patients. But in general, uh, we started seeing a lot more insulin resistance in the past, you know, however many decades um, because of our adiposity. There's a few different hypotheses out there, but I think the underlying cause is this energy excess that we're getting. When you get energy excess from calories, it doesn't matter whether it's from, you know, people talk about it's, only, it's the carbs or it's the fat. It's energy excess, whether it's carbohydrates or fat. Not as much so protein, and we can talk about that later, but that both the energy excess will then cause an adiposity excess, fat excess. And some of us are good at storing that fat, for example, in your legs and your hips, subcutaneous, the stuff you can pinch. Other, others of us have a lower threshold to where we can store it a little bit, but then it starts spilling over into our organs where it's not supposed to be. And when the fat starts spilling over, that's where, you know, if we go back to our analogy, that's where the key if the insulin key doesn't work so well, uh, there's something in the ignition. So in general, you, you, we're eating too much. Not And if we want to get into like the whole obesity is a choice, I love talking about that. But we're eating too much. I don't think by any fault of our own, it's our environment and plus our genetic combined together. Some of us are able to gain a lot more weight than others. We call this, we talk about our weight health, where... Some people can be a BMI, let's say they're a BMI of 35. They, they look like they're carrying a lot of weight, but they're metabolically healthy. They're storing it in their legs and, and their butt and thighs. And whereas somebody else could have a BMI, just a, they look like they're normal weight, but they're carrying it around their abdomen and they have a very low threshold of, of carrying that fat. And they may have actually poorer weight health than the person that weighs a, a lot more. So that's why you see actually different ethnicities. We have different cutoffs, of BMI, and where we, it's not talked about enough. And this is one of the issues with the BMI. But if you start using different cutoffs for depending on your ethnicity, then we can start seeing like, hey, this person at a 28 BMI is at a higher risk for type 2 diabetes than someone else of a different ethnicity than even if they had a 34, or 35 BMI or something like that. So it's it's. It's, it's a genetic thing because some people have genetics that protect them. Some people don't. Uh, and it's not all about just the, the number on the scale. It's also about where we store the fat and how it's stored and our, how our body processes it. And honestly, we, our next kind of thing to dig into is your expertise on obesity. So it's a great segue into talking about, and a lot of your current work with, you know, obesity isn't a choice that people necessarily make and a lot of where your focus is now. We'd love to go there next Sounds great. What do you got? Shoot. <laughs> well, if you want to start as a, I should have said this in your opening, Dr. Adowski has an awesome Instagram account that you should absolutely follow. But I know something that you focus on there a lot, like you said, is that for everyone, it's not just as easy as stop eating food or mm -hmm. it's a morality issue. You can't control yourself around certain things. 
And I think this is, you know, a great opportunity to hear your insight as actually someone that works with primarily people that do have excess adiposity, your experience there. Yeah. People get really upset when you even insinuate that obesity is not a choice. And it, it's because people don't understand what, what that means. What people think is that we have no no free will to make healthier choices and that there's no point we might as well just do whatever because we're gonna our destination is already picked for us and that's that's not what it means I, I don't think anybody goes throughout their life choosing to have obesity like i always say unless you're a sumo wrestler or something like that you're like trying to eat a lot to weigh a lot i don't know too much about sumo wrestling but that's the only one instance where i, I could foresee that being the case but most people don't go through their life uh choosing i want to have obesity and then people like but they make choices all day and every choice that that you make you have a choice to pick something healthier or not healthy uh to eat we'll we'll get into that but think about like a a a little kid just they're just living life passively what they're going throughout their life like whatever's in front of them whatever tastes good they're not thinking about their weight necessarily uh so they may start gaining weight without much thinking about it and that's how most people go throughout their life until there's some sort of external factor like the doctor saying something, a friend saying something. What's interesting then is that the stigma and the shame that can be put on those people, you would think that for most people to be like, hey, you should do something about this. These people try to then make that conscious choice to start fighting back. Unfortunately, we have these biological drivers in our brain. And again, a lot of this is genetic. This is where the genetics fall into place because the, gen- the genetics are in our appetite centers and our reward centers. So it would be like, hey, most people know that eating an apple instead of the donut in the break room is probably a good, the, eating the apple instead of the donut is a good idea. People know that, hey, maybe I should eat that broccoli instead of the French fries or something with dinner. I think most people know them, but it, there are these drivers that aren't just, you know, our internal drivers, but also externally, if, the, if we didn't have those foods around us, We wouldn't know any better, but then once the foods are around us, we have these internal drivers that it's like an itch that you just have to scratch. Some people don't have those itches though. And that's why we see some people like that person can eat whatever they want and not gain weight. And it's not necessarily because they have like a faster metabolism. They burn everything off. They can, I mean, we, I see it at birthday parties that you can see it at birthday parties with like even fraternal twins when the one girl will eat uh, or boy will eat a few cupcakes and the twin that's fraternal, not identical, they'll eat one and they'll be like, I'm full. The other one, they have the same, they have the same environment growing up, the same nurturing, right? But the nature is slightly different in their genetics. And you'll see someone, another one eat more. Like my kids, for example, I don't stop them from eating cupcakes. If if we're going to the birthday party, I'm not going to say, Hey, you can't have that cupcake. Everybody else is enjoying it. I probably I, I probably get shamed on Instagram for that, but like <laughs> I, I notice my, you know, my kids, they, they'll eat one once in a while, they'll want another one and they'll just be like, they'll eat half maybe sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm full. And I'm like, that's interesting where I'll see other kids, they'll eat a few more. And then I, and then it's really particular though, with the, the like the fraternal twins, sometimes I see and, and the, and one of them will eat much more than the other one. And I'm like, Hey, that's interesting. They have the same environment at home. Um, just different genetics. And so clearly there's something genetic going on here. Now, what people will say is like, our genetics haven't changed. Right. It's, it's correct. Our environment is what's changed 
in the past however many years. But the, the genetics load the gun. This is a, a famous quote, but the, the genetics load the gun, the environment pulls uh, the trigger. And so even before with different genetics, we'd have different variations in our weight, just slight, but the environment exacerbates it. It aggravates those differences over time. We have these foods that are just very easily overeaten uh, with genetics combined with that. Some people just eat a little bit more each meal by no, by, by no choice of their own because it's just it's a passive thing. They may try to fight it, but imagine like you see these. I mean, if you follow my Instagram, people are like, well, you're choosing to eat however many more calories. I'm like, so you're telling me that everybody lives in a metabolic kitchen where every morsel of every food and every calorie is measured. No, imagine like every meal, there's like just 50 more calories here, there, and it just adds up day over day. And so like telling people that they choose, it just makes no sense. So Spencer, how do you explain the fact that there is a strong correlation between a socioeconomic condition and obesity? Basically, a more a higher income, less obesity, lower income, much more obesity? Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of studies into this and, you know, it's so funny. This is another, social media is, is a crazy world, but you'll see some people be like, well, you can't cook these pulses for like 80 cents and all this and that. It's true that you could probably make some of these foods for a lot cheaper. But in, in the end, like when you're, when you have to work multiple jobs to try to make ends meet, you're stressed because of, you know, maybe you have kids that you have to take care of. In the end, having a lot more money just makes things a lot easier. I make a joke about like the personal trainer at the gym shaming the, the mom of three that they have to meal prep every meal, get seven to eight hours. And, and, and the mom's just sitting there like, what? Like, whereas the personal trainer literally lives in the gym. It's, it would be easy for me. So I have a very flexible lifestyle now. I'm all telemedicine. And in between, I'm able to go for walks in between. And sometimes during meetings, I have plenty of resources to cook whatever I want. I can even, you know, I'm not, I don't live where I want to live right now. I'm moving soon, but like pretty soon I'd be able to uh, afford an Uber Eats super healthy meal. Whereas somebody else, maybe they only have uh, a McDonald's or whatever near them. And like, you know, I'm not so sure of how good the food is at McDonald's or whatever fast food that they have. So that, that, that explains a lot of it. I mean, it's just when you have the resources, you can do whatever you want. I can, you could build a home gym. You can do this and that. You can have a neighborhood you can walk around. That's nice. Whereas other people, they won't have that. I mean, they could, they could try to make it happen. They could fight through it, but the barriers are much larger. Um, so it's always easier said than done with somebody who has those resources. Just do it versus somebody who's like, okay, I'm trying here, but it's pretty hard. So, so basically what you're saying, it's a, the resource and also I think that the time as, as I'm getting yeah. older, money is cheaper than your time. And the, mm -hmm. we, we are talking about it always that the longevity by design. Yeah. Uh, you have your own time. I know it will be 90 hopefully or 100, but that's what you have. And when you are getting older and older, and usually we are getting uh, also uh, more and more resources uh, 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 that, that you have, you started to realize the time is the limit. And the, those people with the low social economic, they're working two jobs, three jobs, yeah. uh, and also they're living the uh, food desert. So it's very hard for them. And, and the uh, stress. I think that that's, yeah, the stress. Yeah. I think that that's a, a, a big part of that. So, so that's driving me actually 
Uh, you spoke a lot about uh, BMI, not a lot, a bit about BMI and so mm-hmm. on. And um, uh, there, there was something uh, uh, um, in addition to BMI that uh, we like to look at, uh, at least at the track, and I assume that you are as well. It's uh, more like a, a body composition. Um, so if you uh, look at that comparing to BMI, what is your opinion about that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the cool thing about a BMI I, everybody hates a BMI, but the cool thing about it is it's so easy to calculate. That's why they do it. It's so easy to calculate. It's ingrained into the research. If I, you know, if we had it my way, there'd be like some little Star Trek little thing on our app that would scan us, scan us without, but that was cheap. It was, it was a free app. It would scan us. It would know where every little molecule of our tissue was located, what type it was. And, and we'd probably be able to get a lot of really cool research. So they're starting to do this with DEXA scans, even MRIs in some cases, trying to look at where, like what type of body composition, muscular versus adipose, where's that adipose located? What, even like the type of adipose tissue and that type of thing. And then they're starting to look at functional MRIs and all sorts of, all sorts of crazy stuff. So if I had it my way, we would be able to scan everybody and, and, and then have the research on that to where when we scanned another person, we would be able to predict what was going to happen with that person. Unfortunately, we don't have that luxury yet. I'm sure uh, things are changing quite quickly with healthcare. So I wouldn't put it past that we have something like that in the next few decades, I, I think. But for now, we have do, we do have DEXA scans that we could get. Um, they're somewhat readily available in bigger cities. And uh, the data is pretty clear that like uh, body composition would give you uh, incremental better information. But if you don't have that, you can use a BMI plus a waist circumference at least. And then, you know, for you guys, we can do biomarkers and the biomarkers plus the the waist circumference and the BMI does a pretty good job at clinically, uh, what I call staging that person's obesity. So that goes back to the person who, you know, they have a relatively smaller waist, but they they have a larger BMI because they're holding it in their legs, let's say. And then their biomarkers look good. Whereas someone who has a a lower BMI, but a higher waist circumference and their biomarkers look not great. So you can actually clinically assess their obesity in that type of way, as opposed to getting everybody a DEXA scan. Because even if you got everybody a DEXA scan, you know, there might be some variances in there where, um, hey, we still want to check their biomarkers because that's not going to predict everything, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. By the way, I've, I've done a DEXA scan a couple of months ago. And I felt that I'm good and I've seen that I have some visceral fat. So literally yeah. now I've started to work very hard to, uh, uh, to remove it. So, but again, I think that uh, I'm in the side of, uh, I don't know, the 80, uh, the 80-20, I'm in the 20%. I'm trying to optimize everything. And uh, what you are trying to do, which is, I think, very noble, is let's take the 80%, the people that are really unfortunate, let's bring them to... And I think that uh, uh, today, InstaTracker is more uh, taking care of the 20% people that really want to live better, longer, have the funds, have the excitement, have the motivation to do that. And yeah. definitely we need also to help the 80% that don't have all of that. So yeah. thank you for yeah. doing that. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a business model with people that there are a lot of people that want that extra little bit. So I can understand that. Yeah. I think Gil and I both would very much love though if we could instead of focusing on the one percent getting one percent better like you said going from a 300 to 400 like whatever bench lift. press whatever yeah, yeah. bench press there goes, sorry skip my brain yeah. really again helping someone just 
and go for that 10 minute walk. Yeah. But on that bench press, doctors who lift, I know it's something that you and your brother yeah. also did too. And focusing on muscle mass is some and strength training. I feel like it's also something that's pretty rare amongst physicians of recommending that people pick up and put down pretty heavy stuff. But there's tons of research that shows that muscle mass is associated with better health outcomes. We're hoping that you could maybe describe some of that research or reasoning behind that. And then if there is a recommended protocol for strength training among adults, especially maybe adults that have that excess adiposity. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. Yeah. So I always talk about like, uh, you know, we talk about the key uh, from insulin and, and the sugar trucks in our muscles, let's say. When you have more muscle, you have more sugar trucks. You have more storage depot for the sugar and nutrients. The other thing is like when you exercise acutely, like at that time, you sensitize, you, you recharge the batteries of those sugar trucks. They can come out. Some of them don't even, you might hotwire them. They don't even need a key necessarily uh, to help get the, the sugar. And so lifting weights creates, in the analogy, more sugar trucks, more ignitions, whatever you want to say, more places to store that, that sugar. When you look at longevity uh, studies, it tends to be people that are stronger throughout their life that uh, live longer. You know, we, we don't have any randomized controlled trials of doing this. They would take, they would just take too long. There's not any really good randomized controlled trials looking at longevity for some of these things. We just kind of have these observational data. And it looks like those who have more muscle mass to a point, by the way, to a point, uh, it's probably these bodybuilders that have, a, ex, there's an excess of everything. Uh, but a little bit stronger, a little bit better, uh, a little bit more muscle throughout life, better quality of life too. It's, you know, I know you guys focus on the longevity, but I have a feeling you also focus on the health span and quality of life, which is also important. So function as well. But metabolic health, you have more places to store uh, nutrients, um, have more opportunity. The, the, the thing with the adiposity though, so some people mistakenly say, all right, you just got to build more muscle. You don't have to lose more fat. It's like, well, the fat can still, the excess adiposity, despite having more muscle mass, can still really make those batteries dead and the sugar trucks really put something in the ignition. But lifting weights makes that process a lot easier. More muscle means more uh, calorie burns, not by a lot, by resting, but you do more when you have more muscle. You can function more. You can work out throughout the day, do more, and you burn more during that aspect. And then Having more muscle is also related to uh, if you have excess adiposity, you're able to lose more fat and keep it off. You know, this is observational, but that tends to be the key. So I love lifting weights. I'm just, a, I'm a shield for it. That's what got my, you know, got me good at sports. It's also been a big part of my career. So at least twice a week, 
if you're not doing anything right now, 10 minutes once, once a week, just start trying to do like bodyweight squats or, and if you can't even do one, just start with a half one and just work your way up push-ups. If you can't, you know, just get on your knees and kind of do some, some of those types of push-ups, knee push-ups, and then work your way to two hands and, and, you know, whether you need to get a strength trainer, a strength coach or somebody else that can help you through the motions, like I think everybody or most people, I don't want to say everybody, not everybody, maybe there's some people that, you know, can't, you know, can't move at all right now. A, a lot of people could start just even once a week with just a few minutes um, working through some of those things. So, but ideally you would do at least twice a week. I would say full body, uh, work your way up there. And then if you get up to three or four times, uh, you start, it starts to get gravy. Like, you know, once you get past that twice or three times a week, if you're doing full body or most of your muscle groups, you're, you're good to go. Yeah, and Spencer, I would like to double click on the point that you said you, you can exercise too much. And uh, yeah. we, in, in our audience, I'm sure that it's happened. It's actually happened to me uh, this week that I, I went to a, a lot of uh, a weightlifting uh, classes and I've started to feel like uh, uh, one of my muscles started to uh, feel very bad. And instead, so I said, immediately I, I quit the class and the day after I, I, I joined the yoga class. So, so what I'm saying, it's, uh, it's amazing to exercise and lifting weight is very important, but also uh, if you take it too much, you will get injured and that will make a negative effect. So know what is your limit and try to uh, not go over the limit. And uh, maybe, I don't know, four times a week is great. Don't do it seven days a week. Take a day rest and uh, 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 do some stretching and also do some cardio. So... And I'm not saying that because a lot of our audience are overachievers and the, the risk of being overachiever is basically they get injured and then you won't be able to exercise for a while. So try not to do it. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I've been one who has overdone it many times in the past, so could appreciate. Excellent. Um, so um, we uh, discuss a lot about uh, glucose and uh, insulin and the uh, I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, very recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, InstaTracker added the uh, insulin as uh, uh, our uh, newest uh, biomarker in uh, in our uh, ultimate panel, which is a panel that includes up to 48 blood biomarkers. So it's a lot of biomarkers, and uh, we're trying to explain to the user uh, uh, how to use it and uh, uh, what to, uh, to do with that. So I would love to hear your perspective about uh, uh, insulin, high level, uh, how is it important? What is the insulin, uh, uh, let's say, responsibility other than what everyone knows that it's uh, important for uh, allowing the glucose to go to into the cells? Uh, I would love to, to hear your perspective about that. Yeah, so uh, fasting insulin, you know, some some doctors do it, some doctors don't. It's one of these things that would probably be like a cherry on top to where if you start seeing an increasing fasting insulin, it's like clearly this person has likely has some insulin resistance. I don't know what uh, cutoff level you use. I generally use like a cutoff of 10. It can be quite, uh, it can be spurious where some people it looks like it's, oh, it's getting close to 10 and then the next time it'll be like four or something and they don't have any other uh, reasons they'd be insulin resistant. But if you see a consistent, like their, their other markers look within... The relatively normal level, let's say their HDL is, you know, maybe teetering that lower level, but like, and their triglycerides are starting to increase. And then you see an insulin that's like, let's say it's like 20 or something like that. When you start seeing that rising insulin, it's, it's because your pancreas is 
pushing more out because it's like, hey, we got to keep this glucose lower. Your glucose could be normal. And that's because your pancreas is trying to keep it that way. So I've, I've used it in the past. I, I, don't, I don't get it automatically in patient because, you know, it's an insurance thing, whether they're going to pay for it or not. But there are patients that want to go, hey, I'd like to get, I'd like to know if I'm insulin resistant or not. Okay, let's get all these markers. And insulin, if it's, if it's above 10 and they have other, you know, like their waist circumference is a little bit elevated, but their other things look relatively in the normal range. That's where I'm like, hey, yeah, you, you got some insulin resistance. We need to we need to tighten things up a little bit, um, get you a little bit leaner. That's that's kind of the the gist for me. If you start seeing that increase, it's like, hey, um, time to time to lean up. Yeah, and I uh, spoke with a good friend of mine who also was a guest in the podcast, and actually uh, we were, we just recorded another episode with him. His name is uh, Doctor Mitch Wozniak. He's a uh, a bariatric surgeon, one of the best bariatric surgeons. And he, when I discussed with him uh, insulin, he's saying, uh, in his opinion, his insulin is uh, like the early uh, warning sign for uh, starting to have uh, like issue with uh, glucose metabolism. Very similar in a way to when you look at the upper B, as it's the early warning sign for uh, lipid issues. Uh, so that's how we see it. And it sounds like you... <laughs> You describe it very similarly, so I'm uh, happy to hear that and happy that uh, uh, we made uh, the right decision to have insulin and uh, give our user a bit more uh, early warning uh, uh, because we believe in prevention. It sounds like you believe in prevention as well. So let's uh, uh, let's find the issue early and let's take care of it instead of uh, uh, send it to the, the mechanic and then uh, do a lot of, uh, inject a lot of insulin in order to solve the issue that you might solve by uh, just uh, eating a bit different. So yeah, thank when, you for that. Yeah, when, when you get some of these tests, you want to know like, what am I going to do with it? So like some, I know some like endocrinologists or doctors might not order that and they're like, what, how's it going to change your management? But I will say if if a patient is motivated and they, and, and let's say you didn't get the insulin, but everything else looks normal and they have a little bit of an increased waist circumference, are they going to, is that going to change their behavior? So what, what the insulin would ideally do is go, okay, we got this, everything else looks pretty good, but your insulin's high. And I think based off of your other stuff, you definitely have in, insulin resistance now. Will that motivate that person? And I think for you guys, people that are like really into this, if they see that, add to their biomarkers it would probably give them a little bit more motivation to go yeah i really you know there's a i love shawarma i'd be like okay i should probably cut back on the garlic sauce that i'm putting down my shawarma or something like that yeah i don't i don't see any harm in in doing it other than like the only harm would be like if somebody didn't if it were just spurious for some reason it was elevated once and everything else is normal as long as there's as long as people understand the pretest probabilities and, and understanding of these numbers that they can be some variation yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fine marker. Yeah. By the way, shawarma is my wife's favorite food. So, so you can be friends. <laughs> yes, I love it. It's my favorite by far. It's the one thing I could eat for the rest of my life. If we stick on insulin resistance for a bit, we know it has an impact on obviously being able to pull glucose from our bloodstream into our, most of our cells. Are there other health risks that are associated with being insulin resistant? Yeah, so insulin has uh, 
uh, has receptors, you know, in different parts of our bodies. And there are certain enzymes that uh, control our lipid metabolism. For example, uh, lipoprotein lipase is what uh, cleaves off uh, the, the, some of the lipids from our, our lipoproteins, which are, you know, our low-density lipoprotein, um, so the LDL, HDL, the VLDL, all these different things. And, and so if the lipoprotein lipase is in, if we're insulin resistant, the lipoprotein lipase isn't working as well. Those li lipids aren't getting cleaved and being used in our cells either. But then there's also something called hormone sensitive lipase. And you know, people talk about how like insulin comes in and uh, it's a fat storage hormone. Well, hormone sensitive lipase, insulin stops the cleave of your own fat cells, your own adipocytes. And so what people think of as insulin as fat storing, but if you become insulin resistant, you're actually, you're in a lipolytic state. You're breaking down fat and you can't stop the process because the insulin usually does that. And what that creates is this kind of really dyslipidemia, this milieu of dyslipidemia, where you see small LDL particles, increased triglycerides on higher apolipoprotein B, ApoB, and that, so there's insulin resistance, which can cause you know, endothelial dysfunction that, that can cause the LDL particles and ApoB particles to get stuck in your, in your arteries to start atherosclerosis. But you also have more particles in general, which will then cause more atherosclerosis. So that's what I focus on. It's like, hey, if you're insulin resistant, not good. You're going to have these probably more atherogenic particles. And you're, and you're going to have them more readily stuck in your arteries and start atherosclerosis. So that's a, that's a big thing I focus on. Blood pressure too. If you look at metabolic syndrome, it's uh, blood pressure. You'll have an effect on there, which also can increase atherosclerosis, kidney disease, strokes, that type of thing. And then you will have to stop eating shawarma. Yeah. And then I have to see, I mean, I suppose you could just eat the chicken, but I wouldn't have, be able to have anything else with it. Since you mentioned it, so ApoB is something that, you know, we'd also love to touch on. And I'll just say a lot of, I feel like sometimes I read comments on your post related to cholesterol and people just going constantly about LDL particle size, but all yeah. particles of LDL are things that, you know, we don't necessarily want triglycerides, precursors to LDL and ApoB, as you mentioned, something that recently has garnered a lot of attention from scientists as well as cl clinicians kind of maybe becoming more of an essential predictor for heart disease. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, of utilizing ApoB for a predictor of heart disease as well? Yeah. When you look at the, like what the, the physiology or pathophysiology, I should say, the process of atherosclerosis, it's, it's the particle specifically that gets into the endothelia, which is the lining of your artery. And the particle has this ApoB protein on it. And that's the part that gets stuck actually gets caught in inside your little matrix inside your uh, intima of your arteries. So like if you actually measure the, measure the particles and not just the cholesterol, the cholesterol is kind of the cargo, the triglycerides kind of the part of the cargo of these particles. If you actually measure the particles, those are what are specifically getting stuck in your arteries. And so you'll have a much better prediction. And, and Turns out like they thought this and they've done lots and lots of studies to look at this. It turns out that's, that's the case. It's like, yeah, actually the risk follows along the level of your apolipoprotein B. And so I, I think in the future, you know, some people use just the standard lipid panel, which everybody knows it's the 
HDL cholesterol, which doesn't have ApoB. That's the one particle that doesn't have ApoB, by the way. But then it has, you have an LDL cholesterol, and then you can actually do something called a non-HDL cholesterol. You use your total cholesterol and then just subtract out your HDL cholesterol. And then all the rest is, are your ApoB-containing lipoproteins. But they're still measuring just the cholesterol, the cargo on those pro proteins. Whereas if you measure the actual ApoB protein, that's the specific protein that's being caught into the endothelium and starting the atherosclerosis cascade, starting black. Yeah, I, I think in the future we're going to see, as long as it's cheap and insurance starts paying for it, I think we're going to start seeing, like, why don't you get the lipid panel and then why don't we get the ApoB with it? Because there's something called discordant. So the way that, the reason that they haven't changed from that is because, well, the measuring just the cholesterol does a decent job at estimating that ApoB. Like it's, it, it gets close, but there's some people that can have what appears to be a normal appearing LDL cholesterol. You know, people call it the bad cholesterol, but cholesterol is cholesterol. But the LDL, what they're really trying to get at is the LDL particles. LDL cholesterol does a decent job at that, but there's some people that'll look normal LDL cholesterol, but they'll have a high amount of LDL particles in ApoB, and you wouldn't know unless you measured it. So, and and in those, in the people that are discordant, it's really the insulin resistant people, which are, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people, I'd say, you know, I mean, could do certain estimates, but a lot of people are at this point are becoming more insulin resistant to where if you only got the standard lipid panel, you'd probably miss out on some of these people. So, I think if you can do it, I'd grab an apolipoprotein B with your standard. A lipid uh, profile panel. So, so why why it's not part of the normal uh, uh, medical practice to test ApoB on top of the normal lipid panel? Yeah, it's it's one of these things where you, like inertia from you know certain ways we've done it. It's like one of those things where everybody's done it this certain way. I just keep going that way. So I, I think it, there's a big push to to add it, and it's. In the past decade, it's gotten hard, stronger and stronger, and, and there are a lot of big proponents about it. I don't think it's going to, I still don't think it's going to change even the next decade, but I think in maybe a decade or two, the trials have to start also uh, using it as like a way to um, target it. And then once it gets into the guidelines, the true guidelines, like, hey, this is the number one recommendation to do it, that's where you'll start seeing change. Insurances have to pay for it as well. Yeah. You'll, you'll hear some people patients complain like, hey, the doctor ordered an ApoB and I got charged $100 for it. It doesn't cost you. Know, it doesn't cost a ton of money if you pay cash for it. But yeah, I think it, it really it has to get into the guidelines. It has, studies have to continue, stack up and then uh, insurances have to pay for it. And then yeah. we'll see it. So so in the meantime, everyone that wants to go again above and behind should find it uh, uh, not via the clinician most likely and the uh, uh, and unfortunately, that's the situation, let's say, for the next decade or so. so yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a while. Yeah, I think it's going to be a while. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, okay. We pivot from APOB into, again, a lot more of what you focus on. In telemedicine in particular, at least when I started following you a few years ago, you were working with another company offering nutrition counseling to people online, which I feel like was at that point pretty revolutionary. And when it comes to weight management or body composition, metabolic health, understanding the role of behavior change is something that's so crucial for people trying to give these recommendations for people to listen. <laughs> but how do you use behavioral science to help your patients achieve their health goals? And I think especially since you mostly are involved in telemedicine, seeing people remotely. 
Yeah. So in the past, it was just me. I was just the only guy like doing it all by myself. I had to do all the nutrition, the strength training and the medicine. You know, so I had to learn behavior change. I had to read books, motivational interviewing, took courses. You know, now the great thing is I have an amazing team uh, like Weight Watchers. They have a whole scientific team that that goes into behavior change. Like that's like what they're known for. You know, they're the number one doctor prescribed a commercial program for behavior change and lifestyle. So now luckily I utilize tech and a whole team that can do it. So I, it takes the burden off of me and, and also my clinician at Sequence. We have a whole comprehensive program, but having a team behind you to help with the tech to do that. But if you're doing it yourself, it's, you, you really have to talk to patients with empathy, understand where they're coming from, you know, not wag your finger at them and say, Hey, you, you need to cut out this food and, and that food, and you got to follow this type of diet or else you're going to die type of thing. Sometimes scare tactics work for individuals, but for most people, it's just like, I don't want to get shamed. I'm not going back to that doctor again. I hear it all the time. I hear it from patients that saw other doctors and that type of thing. So it's really, you know, meeting the patients where they are like, Hey, instead of, you don't have to meal prep every single day, chicken and broccoli and brown rice or whatever that they're, that some people say to eat, or that you have to follow a ketogenic diet, or you have to eat this many calories or else, or else you kind of see what they're doing. You give a, you know, a certain dietary pattern, a good healthful dietary pattern. But then you, you talk about like, what are you doing now? How can we shift that a little bit more towards this? Uh, and also, of course, that's where, you know, I get into the medicines. If I need to hit a biological driver and push back against those drivers, that's where I use medicines. But, you know, for, if it's a behavioral thing, we can focus on that by really meeting where they are and uh, doing that. Yeah. And uh, I, I have to say, as the founder of a company that they uh doing that for the last 14 years. I think that the behavioral change is the hardest uh, for us. And uh, Mark, uh, Ashley is with me. I know we're working together for more than eight years. And, and we see it uh, again and again. It's, uh, that's the toughest. The, the finding the data, it's hard. And uh, uh, writing it and uh, designing it and all of that. But how can you uh, make the, uh, the client, in your cases, the patient for us is a client, uh, make changes. It's a, it's a very tough uh, nut to crack. And I think that it's also, if we are, uh, most of our audience are not founders or not running a, pra a, a practice that they're uh, trying to help uh, people to lose weight, so they care more about themselves. Even for yourself, you need to find a tactic that will work for you. So I know I, I like uh, I know, lifting weight and uh, going cycling. My wife likes Zumba and Pilates. So she should do Zumba and Pilates and I should do weight lifting and, uh, and cycling. And when I'm trying to bring her to, to walk with me or to exercise with me, she doesn't like it. And when she, she brought me to Zumba, I didn't like it either. <laughs> so I think that everyone should find and we need to appreciate, what do you really like? I have a good friend that is uh, overweight and uh, I invited him to ride a bike with me once and he started to be... Uh, so excited about it and he started to cycle because he found something he's like and it's exercise or something so uh and, and my wife sometimes telling me gil you, you are like a, a, uh you are doing it too much it's like you are a, like a, a addicted to exercise and at least i'm addicted to something that's positive i'm not addicted to track so i think right. find a, a a push your addiction to something that is positive and uh, and 
also when you are there, try to be not too much addicted because if you are addicted to exercise, you might get injured. Um, but I, I'm 100% with you. Uh, you need to find the, uh, the behavioral change and something that can stick for, uh, for the long go. Uh, don't do something that, don't exercise at 5 a.m. if you used to wake up at 7 a.m. That's one yeah. thing. Yeah. I had a debate at the Obesity Week, it's a big conference, and about like cardio versus lifting for fat loss, if you had to pick one. And it's it's a funny debate because like I'm sitting there going like, you know, like I usually give it to my pre- preference to my patients. My patients like to bike or run or whatever. I'm, I'm not going to tell them to stop and to only lift weights. So like, honestly, like, yeah, physical activity is good. Sure, we'd like a combination, but like, let's do what you think you're going to do because all of it's good for you anyway. And will have good effects. So I like that. Do what do what do what the patient prefers, as long as it's in a healthy direction. Excellent. And something else that you talked on was one. I think it, offering empathy to your patients is so important, especially in this, you know, patients that do have obesity. And something I know you talk about a lot on social media, but also have a lot of expertise in, is targeting those biological factors related to obesity. Um, and there are so much debate about these new class of drugs, the GLP-1 agonists, that can be very helpful in helping reduce adiposity. So I was hoping you could briefly talk us through what those are and then maybe debunking some of the myths or misconceptions or garbage in general that you hear about them when you do make you know posts similar to how obesity is not a choice. Like when is it the right time to prescribe them and what do they actually do? Yeah, so GLP-1 stands for glucagon-like peptide 1 natural hormone that comes from our intestines in general after eating certain foods it helps our pancreas make more insulin it slows our gastric emptying but also has an effect on satiety uh, and cravings and appetite so the issue is that our own endogenous or natural glp1 breaks down within minutes so like if you took an injection of it it would be it would be gone like it it doesn't matter so scientists first used it for type 2 diabetes because they found people's blood sugars were improving and people were losing weight. So they're like, this is a great type 2 diabetes drug as opposed to some of the older drugs which cause weight gain and sometimes hypoglycemia, their blood sugars will get too low. These don't make your blood sugars go too low for the most part. Uh, and uh, people are losing weight and, and they're helping without using insulin as a different non-insulin type of drug. So that scientists found ways uh, there's a Gila monster. They use the venom from it. Really cool story if anybody wants to go look it up. But they found ways to basically uh, mimic our own endogenous or natural GLP-1 without it being broken down within a minute or two. And so throughout the years, it started off with a twice-a-day injection. Then it went to a once-a-day injection. Now we're at a, a once-a-week injection. They found ways to have it like a seven-day a seven half-life. And the way that they're they're modifying the peptide and even finding ways to make it not a peptide. So the reason it has to be injected is because it's a peptide and it gets broken down in our gastrointestinal system, like our, our stomach acid would just break it up. They have found ways to put it in pills even as a peptide, but the, it, it has a special delivery system that changes the pH, all these different things. Now they're finding ways to make smaller little molecules that you can ingest. Those won't be out for a little bit later, but for, for the time being, a once-weekly injection and people's blood sugars are improving. Now, the thing is they found that people are losing a lot of weight. Like, wow, this is, there, there are receptors in the brain that had the GLP-1 receptors are in the brain. And really this is having an effect on satiety. 
So uh, they developed it for obesity. First in 2014, it was the drug liraglutide. First used as Victoza. Then uh, that was a type 2 diabetes drug. Then in 2014, they cranked up the dose from 1.8 milligrams to 3 milligrams. And this is a once a day injection. But that drug helped people lose about 7 or 8% total body weight, which is okay. When you think about diet and exercise over a year average on a population level, it's more like 5 or 6%. You start getting up to 7 or 8% and keeping it off, that's pretty good. But these newer ones are even more powerful. The, the reason there's a craze about them is because now we're seeing that 15 to 20% total body weight loss on average. And it's only a once a week injection with, with relatively minimal side effects. Now, the side effects are like GI, like you get some nausea. Most people it resolves. Most people it's mild. Some people get a, a moderate to severe nausea. Once in a while, they're like throwing up. They don't feel good. For most people, it's very mild. Uh, one of the misconceptions is that it's the nausea that makes people lose weight. It's, it's not that resolves and what they're left with is this satiety. And it's not just satiety like you feel full. What people describe is that they used to, they felt full and satiated after a meal, but, or maybe not, but let's say they didn't, the, me the medicine helps with that, but also they could have felt full, but still like everybody here probably knows this. You're full, but and you're satiated, but you still want that dessert, whatever it is. I don't know. Some people it's ice cream, some people it's pie. Some people like kind of starchy, like chips type of thing. That's, that's our, our reward center in our brain. These medicines also have a strong effect there. And people describe that food noise, like, go get it, go eat that, go eat that right now. You're full, but I don't care. Go eat that. It's this little, little person on your side yelling in your ear. These medicines basically go zoop, hit these receptors in your brain and you go, you know what? Not only did I eat a, a smaller portion that I usually do, I could take it or leave that dessert. And it's what the patients describe, they all say the same thing. We've had, I've had thousands of, of patients. We have tens of thousands of patients and uh, they all say the same thing. Like they still like it. They can eat it if they want to, but they can take it or leave it. They just don't want it anymore. They don't, they can't, they, they don't have the strong desire, that strong itch that they have to scratch. They don't have it anymore. They can just take it or leave. And what they say is that, is this what it finally feels like to feel normal? What, what it feels like to be someone who lives in a smaller body of, a body that doesn't have to fight tooth and nail, white knuckle it every single day to, to not eat those types of foods. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And that's kind of the where I'm getting back to the genetics where some people don't have to fight. Some people can eat a piece of pizza and be good. Some people have to eat four to feel good and still want more. These medicines basically get these receptors in the brain. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, I don't need to anymore. And they feel so, great. so Spencer, it sounds like too good to be true. What yeah. is the uh, negative side of uh, yeah. Ifatol of uh, uh, yeah. the GLP-1 uh, agonist? Yeah. So, you know, so people are like, you must be a big pharma show. I don't make any money. I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> if you look, you can actually look it up. I always tell everybody, look it up. There's this open, uh, whatever, the Sun Sunshine Act. You can look it up. I may have made like, I've gone out to lunch to learn about some of these things. It's like 30 bucks every couple of years or something like that. But uh, you can look it up. I don't take money from them. I just love the drugs are, some people are like, these aren't miracle drugs. I'm like, well, they kind of are in certain ways. But here are the negatives. Some people get severe side effects where they, they can't tolerate water. They can't, they, so like you worry about them. People talk about kidney failure and this type of thing. They don't, they actually are kidney protective, but. In the rare case that somebody gets a severe nausea, they can't drink or eat. 
they're throwing up, they get what's called hypovolemia and they get dehydrated. And because there's not enough blood flowing to your kidney, their kidneys get injured and hurt. So that you, you do see the, you see that rarely once, I mean, like we, we monitor this very closely in our thousands of patients, but like it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen very often. We do have dietitians that also help with uh, side effects. So like, Hey, this person's having side effects because you can change the way that you're eating it. Some people prefer eating a little bit more frequently, smaller meals, less heavy meals. So not as much fat in the meal. So you'll know, like some people like, oh, I don't feel good after that. So we can modify the way they're eating. That can help. I have some other medicines to counteract some of those side effects as well. Other, other potential negatives though, they're expensive right now. They're super expensive. Some insurance, 50% of commercial insurance is paid for it. The other 50%, unfortunately you're out of luck. So that's a negative. I would say, I think we're going to see a lot of competition coming out in these next few years where it's not just going to be, you know, two companies. We're going to see multiple companies and I'm hoping the competition starts driving down the price uh, and making it more uh, affordable for people. Insurances, um, we got to start doing uh, lobbying. There's, there's, there's bills out there being introduced that we're, Hey, we need to treat obesity like a disease, the way it deserves to be treated. And so we need to cover these things. And as you know, you're talking about, well, let's prevent cardiovascular disease before it happens. Cause once somebody has a heart attack, they go and you imagine having a hospital stay where you get a coronary artery bypass, and then that person's on all sorts of medications and, and certain quality of life factors. So let's, let's see if we can find those patients where we can prevent it. Uh, I think that's going to be key. We're actually doing some research in that regard. So I think we're going to help, help out there. So other, so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I wanted to ask about the duration and also what happened when you go out of a, yeah. a, because I assume that then you're starting, most of them starting to gain weight again, or they are yeah. staying at the same level? Great question. Another big problem. Okay. So another negative you have to stay on. Most people may have to stay on this drug longer term. Now caveats to that. I don't think everybody has to stay on it. I actually think there's my hypothesis because we're going to study. I, I think we're going to be the first to study this, honestly, because how, how closely we're monitoring people, but I don't think everybody has to stay on it for the rest of their life. So you'll see some people be like, this is a short-term quick fix. People are just going to use it, stop it, regain other weight. Why even start it in the first place? Whereas other people will say obesity is just a disease. They're going to need this medicine for the rest of their lives. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I don't know where it lies. Maybe it's a little bit more towards more people having to require something, but I think there's going to be some people that might require that high highest dose of whatever they get on. There's a few of them out there right now, but I've noticed that some people can actually titrate or wean down on the medicine. And, and instead of even they're on the lowest dose, instead of even taking it once a week, they're taking it every like two weeks almost. And they're still maintaining their weight. I have some other people that have completely come off and they're still maintaining their weight. Other people that we monitor them closely at sequence, you'll see their weight starts going up. And so then you intervene again before they regain other weight. And then there's other patients where we, we stop their medicine and not, not, not because we want to stop their medicine. Insurance stops pay, paying for it, for example. It's not by anybody's choice. And we can use non-GLP-1 drugs that didn't work before. They've tried to lose weight with these drugs before. For example, bupropion and naltrexone uh, used originally for like depression and smoking cessation and alcohol cessation for the naltrexone. You can combine those two drugs and make a, a decent weight loss medicine. But they didn't work for these patients in the past. But weight loss, initial weight loss is different than weight maintenance. So it might be that the drugs helped 
improve that inflammation in the brain, the, the, whatever you want to call it, leptin resistance, all sorts of different things that might be occurring. And now, now a, a less powerful drug actually works in helping them and cheaper drug helps them in maintaining that weight loss. So I'm noticing that as well. So yeah, that is one of the things I think no matter what obesity is a disease and will require chronic therapy, but I don't think that means chronic medical therapy. Some people, and my hypothesis is this, I think the people with genetic more propensity towards obesity, where they have a lifelong appetite dysregulation, they're going to require probably more medical. Whereas some people only gained weight recently in life and it was due to like let's, the pandemic or uh, a move, a, a death in the family, marriage, kids, actually kids is the number one I always hear. And so those people, maybe they just needed help with the medicine to get back into the old habits that they used to be before. You know, the, the food noise and things and the environment's going on and they just, it's, it's hard to handle. They use a drug, knock that food noise out. All of a sudden they're able to follow the habits they used to do and they get back into the habit of it and you slowly wean off the medicine and they might notice a slight increase in their appetite and cravings, but Overall, they're back into the habit of doing the things they used to, and they maintain the weight. Noticing it anecdotally has to be studied in a much more rigorous fashion, but I think that's where the future is going to be. Excellent. So what you are saying, it's a very personalized. Some people mm -hmm. will need likely to be on it for life. Other might be on and off. Yep. And some other uh, that uh, maybe have a stronger yes. willpower and better genetics, maybe they can just uh, go with lifestyle and they... Uh, uh, yep. win completely from uh, the GLP-1 agonist. And uh, I agree with you, I think that it's a, a, a wonder drug and very exciting for, it, well, we started with the 80-20, so very exciting more for the 80% that are undeserved, very busy, uh, working hard. And uh, I think that that's give them a, a sort of unfair advantage to be par with the 20% that are more, uh, let's say, a fortune to have more money and more time and more... Uh, yeah. So yeah. it's amazing. And not everybody responds. I will say that too. I can't say like, this is going to solve obesity right now. I think in the future where there's, there's so many different drugs coming out that it's like, wow, I don't know what's going to happen. They may be able to edit our genes at some point too. It's there's all sorts of vaccines, weird stuff going on, but not everybody responds to these at the moment. I mean, that probably has to do with genetics, which we're also studying, but like for the most part, most people respond pretty favorably. So pretty cool. Awesome. And then I feel like we can't let you leave without talking a little bit more about social media since you have such a big presence there. How misinformation really spreads so rapidly on social media. Yeah. People are so heavily influenced by individuals that they follow that have absolutely no credentials to be providing any sort of recommendations or making any sort of claims. So, you know, what are some of the biggest myths maybe that you see out there that maybe you could address as i said i'd like to read your comment section i swear there's oh, a venn yeah. diagram between carnivore anti-vax tanning bed yeah. the men right in the middle just love to comment on your posts but yeah, so i'd love to really hear your funny. thoughts about that you know the, <laughs> the funny thing is there's this restrict option you can restrict on instagram so they continue to yell into the void but they don't know so nobody else sees a lot of these comments i i go through and i see all these restricted comments from people I don't block them because I think it's, it's always so funny because the same people I'm like, you follow me like just to like, just to hate follow. And it's like, I, I don't know why it's, it's so funny to me. Like, gosh, I, I can't believe you waste your time doing that. But so, in, yeah, the, so I will say with the credentials thing, it's a, it's a hit or miss thing because like it's, it's an appeal to authority basically. 
if somebody has an MD, DO, or PhD behind their name, we should automatically listen to that person. So it goes well for me for social media, because like, yeah, I'm a doctor or whatever. But like, the problem is, I, I don't know who's worse, the people without the credentials or the people with the credentials who, who knowingly are deceitful. Yeah. It's a good question. I think, I think those people actually make me more mad because at least they, they can't plead ignorance, you know? So those people make me a little bit more mad. So I, the, but the biggest myths that I see are like, you have to follow one specific dietary pattern and, and they overhype certain mechanistic type of things. So for example, like the whole, like vegetables and seed oils are, are bad for you. So you can find studies that will support any of your, any of your hypotheses. You can find little, little mechanistic studies in like bugs and, and little mice and things like that to say, Hey, this happened in a mouse. So you should probably not eat X, Y, Z. That's been shown to actually be associated with longevity or improved performance. But because we saw it in this mouse and it fits my narrative and I'm selling a book that you should, you should uh, avoid it. I mean, this, this, and. The thing is, what you find on social media is, is that the, the very, if you're vanilla and you say mainstream stuff, your social media is not going anywhere. It's not going to, it's, you're not going to, unless, unless you're someone extremely famous and extremely uh, attractive, you know, it's not going anywhere. Um, but if you start, if you take a strong stance on something that's uh, mainstream, that's known to be, you know, good, such as like, Hey, vegetables are good for you. Okay. No, vegetables are actually bad for you. And you give a little studies, you show a pub, you screenshot PubMed and show a little mechanistic thing and whatever. Uh, it's even better if you can like find some pictures to go along with it and whatever and, and, and make something crazy. That will go viral. Um, the way that I did it though, I was like, I want to take a stance against this, but I have to, you have to, there's a big void. How are you going to, in this huge sea, how are you going to get attention? So I use humor um, and kind of make fun of that type of stuff. So I use, and while also, you know, maybe making fun of stuff, but then also throwing in their genuine, like, here's how it works. So I think, I think what you're seeing, we're going to see is a shift of people getting so sick of the, the charlatans and gurus out there and they want somebody they, they, they want to trust. And I personally just like humor because it's fun. It's just, it's more my style. Like, I don't want to be boring and sterile or whatever. I want to, I want to get people to laugh because that's just my personality anyway. So I use funny memes to come then get somebody's attention, make them laugh and then teach a lesson. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can go on my social media, you can see examples of, of that, but like, you know, for diet Coke, for, for example, people, uh, aspartame and any, any artificial sweeteners really gets people, people going because it's kind of this unknown, unnatural thing. It doesn't matter if there's lots of studies showing safety, people are like, Hey, it's not natural. So I like to zing people with memes and whatever, and it gets the conversation going all the time. And you'll notice the same comments happen over and over again. Why not drink water? Why not do this? And so then I eventually have to address all those in the comments. I'm, I can make a post about that once a week or once every two weeks, and it'll always do extremely well because <laughs> it gets people talking. Um, so stuff like that. I, I, I just, yeah, I think being careful with credentials, I think, you know, great power comes great responsibility. But like if you, the people... People with the, the credentials, I, I think the ones that are doing the disservice, those are ones that really make me, that irk me a lot. Makes money, but it doesn't, it's not good for integrity, honestly. And not good for humanity also. So yeah. don't, don't give someone a bad, bad advice. So absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Gil, any, any final questions from you that you want to touch on? 
No, I think that that was a, a, a very good uh, episode, and uh, I think that uh, your explanation are uh, amazing. I think that the GLP-1, the agonist explanation, that's the best explanation that I heard. Uh, okay. And I spoke with a lot of people that uh, uh, are trying to explain it, uh, let's say, to non-scientific uh, audience. So I think that that's... Uh, uh, you are very good in the translation uh, uh, complex science into uh, uh, understanding of uh, uh, someone that is not scientific. So it, it was a fascinating uh, discussion for me. I think you appreciate that. Well, we wrap up every episode just asking all of our guests if they have a top number one tip for our listeners for extending their health span. So that quality of life, not just the amount of years that are in their life. You better lift some weights. That's what I would say twice a week. <laughs> lift some weights. If you haven't started and you're thinking about it, I would just 10 minutes, 10 minutes, at least once a week to start and then get it to twice a week. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for joining us. It was, as Gil said, really great to have a conversation. And it was fun for me to get to Fangirl, so, one of my favorite mm-hmm. accounts to follow on social media. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Spencer. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit insidetracker.com slash podcast.